Uh, go ahead and get your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter number 9. Acts chapter number 9. And... If the noise gets to be too much, we may have to close that window. I don't know how <coughs> how strong my voice will be. I've, I've had a bit of a cold all week, and so uh, hopefully it lasts. We'll see. Uh, there, if my voice leaves, Captain Finish. Is that the way it works? What? I said if my voice, if my voice quits, you can finish for me, okay? <laughs> <laughs> No, I don't. <laughs> if his voice picks, you can finish for him. Oh, is that what you said? Yeah. See, he's already having trouble hearing. That's a problem. Oh, anyway. Well, let's go ahead and we'll go to the Lord in prayer, and we'll we'll dive into our study here. Dear Lord, we come to you today. Thank you for your blessings, and we do thank you for the day that you've given us. And Lord, we thank you for this time that we have to be in church. Lord, for those who have gathered out, and Lord, we thank you so much for your word that we have that we can gather around and study and hear from you, Lord. We just pray that you would guide and direct me, Lord, as I teach. Help me, Lord, to say the things that are needful, and helpful, and accurate, Lord. I just pray, Lord, that you would uh, just be with each person here that they would glean from the scriptures exactly that which is needed. And Lord, we just pray, ask you that you be with those who. Uh, are still on their way out, be it those who aren't able to be with us due to, to work and uh, illness and different things. Lord, I just pray that you'd watch over them and help them. And Lord, we do just thank you so much for all that you do and all you're going to do. And all these things we pray in Jesus' name and amen. amen. Okay, so what we've been looking at in Acts, last week we were seeing the conversion of Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus. And so uh, we saw that, that uh, it's kind of confusing to say that we saw that Saul, anyway... <laughs> that uh, Saul was breathing out threatenings and uh, he was desiring to persecute and kill all of the Christians and to uh, basically rid the world of Christianity. And he did it, what we saw last week was that he did it um, convinced that he was right, okay? He was genuine, he was sincere. That was the word I was looking for. He was sincere in his beliefs, but he was sincerely wrong. And so he had a desire to serve the Lord. He had a desire to follow after God, but he was mistaken. He was misleading or misled, maybe I should say. And I believe that a lot of people are in that way, in that place where they are sincere. They desire to serve God. They believe that they are right, but they are incorrect in their beliefs. And of course, where we are corrected by our beliefs is from the word of God. We have to be rooted and grounded upon his word, but God came to, or Jesus came to uh, Saul on the road to Damascus, struck him down in his path, and said, why do you persecute me? And I believe that would have been a huge revelation to Saul because he says, I'm not persecuting you, I'm persecuting the heretics. That was his thoughts, right? But instead, Jesus says, whenever you persecute my church, you persecute me. What you do to my people, you do to me. And so anyway... Uh, Saul is quickly corrected in his theology. He finds out that Jesus really is the Son of God, that the church really is of God and his, his doing, and that he has been going contrary to God. He's been kicking against the pricks, as it said. And so what, uh, what Jesus did, he instructed Saul to go on to Damascus, to the place that he was planning on going, 
and still search out the Christians, but instead of searching them out to kill them, search them out to join them. He says, go into the city, and I'm going to send you someone that's going to tell you what you should do. And so God comes to Ananias and says, Ananias, I want you to go to Saul. He's praying. He's seeking me, and I want you to go and preach to him. And so Ananias comes, and uh, after a little bit of hesitation, right, he doesn't want to go immediately. He goes after a little bit of hesitation, and he comes to Saul and uh, welcomes him in. He greets him as Brother Saul, and uh, Saul is saved. He's baptized. He begins to preach and teach in Damascus the message that he came to eradicate. The ones that he was following are now the ones that are following after him, the ones that were chasing after him. The ones that he used to be chasing after, he was now running with. Everything was turned upside down. And so the, the real points, the application that we get out of this is that we see that uh, God knows the heart of every man, and God is able to penetrate even the hardest of hearts. God is able to convince even Saul, even the, the foremost hater and persecutor of Christians, to become a Christian. God is able to do that. But we also see that God also chooses to use men to be a witness for him. It says, how shall they hear without a preacher? And so Jesus could have preached the gospel to Saul on the road to Damascus. He could have been saved on the road to Damascus, but Jesus still chose to employ Ananias. Right? I think that's neat. I think it's neat that he chose to employ Ananias because it is a, an illustration to us that God still uh, desires to use us to be a witness to those who would come to him. That he could send angels. He could send dreams and visions. He could send visions from heaven and blinding light if he wanted to. But he chooses instead to work through individual Christians. Ananias was just an average run-of-the-mill, day-to-day Christian going about his job, living there in Damascus. Uh, and he was faithful. He was obedient to God. And that put him in a place where God was able to use him. And he didn't send uh, Peter. He didn't send uh, Philip. He didn't send Thomas. He didn't send someone else. But he sent Ananias, someone we know nothing about <clears throat> beyond this passage of Scripture, to win Apostle Paul to the Lord. So think about this, the kind of the imbalance of power or whatever you want to say, that Apostle Paul's ministry was huge, right? Basically, he wrote half the New Testament. He took the gospel all throughout Europe and Asia. Uh, so many of the things that was accomplished in Scripture was done by Apostle Paul. But Ananias was still instrumental and bringing Paul to Christ. And so we have no idea uh, what God's desire, what his plan is for our lives, for our individual ministries, but it's not to be comparative. It's not to be looking at one another, but we need to just seek to do what God would have us to do and know that God would use each and every one of us if we are willing and if we are faithful in following him. If we are willing to obey him, he's got a place and a purpose for each of us, whether it's to be Ananias or to be Saul, or to be Peter, or Thomas, or Philip, or whoever. He's got a place for everyone, right? And so anyway, as we come on down in this, uh, our final thought last week was that uh, whenever Saul was converted, whenever he was saved, uh, 
no one really wanted anything to do with him. Everyone was afraid of him, and rightfully so, right? But we find that there were certain men such as Ananias and such as Barnabas that were willing to give him a chance because uh, we find in Scripture there is an overwhelming uh, sense that we are to seek redemption and restoration amongst one another, right? That God is able to redeem even the most vile, that God is able to change their story, and we can't hold it against them forever, right? And so what would have happened if everyone would have excluded Saul, if no one wanted anything to do with Saul, if there wasn't an Ananias, if there wasn't a Barnabas, and no one was willing to reach out and welcome him into the fold? Don't really know, right? Would have been bad. But I tell you, there's plenty of people today who are struggling, who make mistakes, who mess up, who have their share of problems. And if we're not willing to see that God is able to change them, he's able to transform them, he's able to restore them, and we're willing to give them a chance, then we're missing the point of Scripture. We're missing the point of what Jesus is doing because Jesus is taking that which is broken and that which is messed up, and he is fixing it. And so we need to be careful that we're not shunning those that God seeks to transform, right? And so Saul uh, quit persecuting, and it says that whenever he was saved, that then the church had rest throughout all of that region. And that is amazing because a lot of times we just think of Saul as being one of the persecutors, but if his salvation, if his uh, transformation here caused the church to have rest, he must have been the chief instigator, right? And so there was rest throughout all of the region, and it says that the church had peace and rest, and it grew, it multiplied. And that brings us down to verse number 32, where we're going to be at today. And it says that it came to pass, as Peter passed throughout all quarters, he came down also to the saints which dwelt at Lydda, and there he found a certain man named Aeneas, which had kept his bed eight years and was sick of the palsy. And Peter said unto him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ maketh thee whole. Arise and make thy bed. And he arose immediately, and all that dwelt in Lydda and Saron saw him and turned to the Lord. Now there was at Joppa a certain disciple named Tabitha, which by, which by interpretation is called Dorcas. This woman was full of good works and alms deeds, which she did. And it came to pass in those days that she was sick and died, whom when they had washed, they laid her in an upper chamber. And forasmuch as Lida was nigh to Joppa, and the disciples had heard that Peter was there, they sent unto him two men, desiring him that he would not delay to come to them. Then Peter arose and went with them. And when he was come, he, they brought him to the upper chamber, and all the widows stood by him, weeping and showing the coats and garments which Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all forth and kneeled down and prayed, and turning him to the body, said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and lifted her up. And when he had called the saints and widows, presented her alive, and it was known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And it came to pass that he tarried many days in Joppa with one Simon a tanner. And so we have here two miracles that happen, uh, two fantastic things. 
And whenever we look at passages like this, our minds are immediately drawn to that which is miraculous, that which is... Uh, our minds are immediately drawn to the things that are miraculous, the things that aren't seen every day, right? And that's the thing that tends to uh, attract our focus. But in these passages like this, especially these two that were before us today, what is the focus, what is the purpose of these two passages? Anyone want to take a stab at it? What is... Go ahead. What is the purpose? What is it? The, what is the reason this is recorded? Why? What was the author and the Holy Spirit trying to get across to us whenever this was written there? Should put you on the spot. I want you to all to guess a little bit here. Doesn't matter if you're wrong. Not 100% sure I'm right. See, some of the thoughts that people have whenever they look at this is they want to see, okay, as the gospel's going out, as the disciples are going around, there are people being healed. There's miraculous things happening. I said that was one of the first things that we look at. But is the healings and the miracles the purpose? Is that supposed to be the focus? Is that what we get out of this passage? No, it's supposed to be okay. drawing people onto Christ okay. instead of the actual miracle. Right. And so that's the part that's lost on many people is they come to passages like this and they're like, this guy who was paralyzed for all of his life is now walking. It's miraculous. Look at what God did, right? This woman who was dead, she rose from the dead. How great is that? And they completely miss out on the fact that both of these instances were only done to bring people to Christ, right? And so in verse number 35, it says that they saw him and turned to the Lord. In verse number 42, many believed on the Lord, right? And so the focus in both of these is the fact that people were coming to the Lord. And so Paul didn't call, or Paul, uh, Christ didn't call uh, Peter as an apostle to go about doing miracles everywhere he went. That wasn't the focus of his ministry, was it? And even in both of these instances here, Peter wasn't going and having big uh, healing revivals. He wasn't going out and, and handing out flyers and leaflets and saying, come on this day and I'm going to heal everybody that comes. That wasn't the focus of what was going on, is it? He wasn't seeking attention to himself. That's a huge thing, right? Because one of the reasons I'm bringing this out is the way that we perceive this today. There are those who will latch onto this and say we should be seeing these healings like this today. And people should be coming to God for healing. But God didn't, Jesus didn't come to heal our diseases, to heal our problems and things. He came to save souls, Right? And whenever he sent his apostles out, he didn't send them out uh, just simply for the healing of people. But the purpose behind the healings and the miracles was the salvation of souls. And so we've talked about this at length in times past that 
the purpose of these miracles was to authenticate the message and the messenger, right? And what we don't realize is we have great benefits today that they didn't have back then. But we have great benefits today that they didn't have back then. Um, of course, we have the scripture, and it has existed for you know two thousand years. It is translated in a language that we can understand. And on top of that, we have the testimony of countless saints down through the past two thousand years. We have uh, all the evidence of what God has done in this world and even in our own lives. We have so many different things to draw from, so many proofs, so many evidences. But if we would transport ourselves back to Lydda and to Joppa in, you know, the year 40, 50 BC or AD. Sorry, I'm getting my, my dates mixed up a little bit. If we would go back at 40 or 50 AD in Lydda and Joppa, all of this would be new. They didn't have the Bible. They didn't have the Scripture. They didn't have church history. They didn't have all of the teachings and all the preachings and all of the sermons and all of the, the martyrs and all of the faithful witnesses. They didn't have all of that. This was something new that was coming their way. It was something that was completely uh, different to anything that they'd ever heard. And as we're reading this, there's already some believers there, Right? Because Peter passed through all the quarters and came down also to the saints, right? And that's an interesting word because uh, today they've taken that word and they've uh, misused it and they try to make it out like saints are these ones that are venerated by the church or whatnot. But the word saints in the Bible refers to believers. Anyone who's saved, anyone's born again is a saint. Uh, it's been said either you're a saint or you ain't. Ever heard that? And so saints are those who are born again, those who are saved. And so whenever Peter is coming into this area, there are already believers there. Maybe they were saved at Pentecost. Maybe this is part of uh, Philip's ministry. Someone else came through this way, whatever it was. But there were people there who were saved. But as they were there and they were uh, settling into their day-to-day -day lives and they were seeking to be witnesses and to be light to these people around them, Peter comes to this area and God moves him to basically find the toughest case in the area. And so there is a man, he's been sick of a palsy for eight years. That means that he was paralyzed. He was unable to move. He was confined to his bed. Okay? And so it seems as if everybody in the region knew about him. Maybe he was like the man that sat by the beautiful gate begging alms. We don't know. But for some reason, it seems like everybody in the region knew about this man. They had seen him. They knew his plight. They knew the situation that he was in. And God brings Peter to this man and leads him to heal this man. And whenever Peter approaches him, he tells him, Jesus Christ maketh thee whole. Okay? Peter is always careful to give Jesus the preeminence, to give him the glory, and to never attract glory to himself. He does, not, he does not accept any glory, any worship, any praise to himself. And so he says, Jesus Christ maketh thee whole, arise, make thy bed, and he arose immediately. Okay? 
And the reason I'm I'm sticking with this just a little bit is just because of how uh, how much we see these things misinterpreted and misapplied today, and those within uh, Pentecostal, Charismatic, Church of God, stuff like that, uh, that take these passages and they see it as some sort of endorsement and expectation for this to still happen today, and they get the wrong purpose behind it. They get the wrong emphasis on it. And rather than seeing this as God authenticating his apostle, rather than him using it as a means to bring people to Christ, they're saying this is a way for us to uh, fill our coffers. This is a way for us to build up praise and glory to ourselves. And so they hold these great big uh, crusades and revival meetings and healing services and all of this, and they're passing the plate and they're trying to to get people to come up and have uh, some sort of an experience, but their experience is nothing like what we see here. And if you've ever watched or been a part of one of those services, you realize quickly that that isn't what's going on in this passage. There's no big... Uh, big ceremony, there's no uh, build-up, there's no uh, what's the word I'm looking for? It's not a performance. Maybe that's a good way to put it. It's not a performance. Peter just simply comes in and says, God wants to do something great for you, okay? In the name of Jesus, rise up and walk, Right? And he immediately does. Now, you don't see people in these meetings that have been confined to a wheelchair for eight years, unable to move anything below their collarbone, all of a sudden get up and do a jig on the stage. Does that ever happen? No. Because they're charlatans, they're fakes, and they are getting the complete wrong idea about this. But also, in those circles and in those meetings... Is the gospel ever proclaimed? Is the gospel ever preached? What is uplifted is the person doing the miracle, the Holy Spirit, right? Or the Spirit, whatever it is, may not be holy. The person, the Spirit, and the experience. Okay? That's what's uplifted in this. But whenever we look at Peter here, Peter is not uplifting himself. He's not uplifting the Spirit. He's uplifting Jesus. And the entire focus of the, this whole experience is so that people see the power of God, that, so that they will hear the word of God, and so that they will believe upon the Son of God. And after all is said and done here, it says that all that dwelt in Lydda and Saren saw him and turned to the Lord. Now, just I want to look at the, this, these two words here. It says they saw him. Okay, this is the power of a changed life. This is the power of a testimony. You say, well, I wasn't uh, a paralyzed person that walked. I wasn't someone who was healed in this sense. But here's the thing. God still is healing people of a much deeper sickness than paralyzation, than a palsy. But God transforms lives. He transforms people. And he puts them on display before this world to see his power and his actions at work in the lives of his believers. And so this is where we are to be witnesses into all the world. Whenever people see us, they should come to believe him. Right? 
And so this is why it's important for us to live a life that is in tune, that is in alignment with Christ, with His Word, that we live a life that is holy and separated unto Him. Because whenever people look on us, whenever they observe the way that we go through trials and tribulations, whenever they see the way that we, uh, we handle successes and failures, whenever they see our demeanor, our character, our actions, the way we handle ourselves, the way that we exist in this world, they should be able to see Jesus' touch upon us. And because they can see him in us, then they're going to believe on him. And we try to short-circuit this, right? Uh, this is a conversation I was having with Les even this week, is that a lot of times uh, we get the idea with uh, witnessing, soul winning and stuff like that, we almost turned into salesmanship, okay? And there is no relationship. There is no, uh, no actually life on life, them seeing us. It's us showing up trying to sell them something. And I'm not against door-to-door evangelism. I'm not against a lot of these different methods that are used. But what I see in Scripture is that first and foremost, we must have a life that is marked by Christ, and we must be living it intentionally in and amongst this world so that they can see him in us. And then verse number 35, whenever they see us, they will turn to the Lord. Right? And so unless we are walking with Christ, unless our lives have the marks of Christ upon us, this world is not going to see him in us. And we can tell about Jesus. We can uh, recite scripture. We can go down through uh, different step-by-step whatever presentations, but unless it is real in our lives, unless they can see it making a difference in us, unless they can trace it in our lives, it's not going to make a whole lot of difference. And so I think that's one of the reasons why we're often unsuccessful in our endeavors is because what we need to do is not stand on the outside looking in and occasionally send out a salesman to try to bring more people to the group. But instead, we are to infiltrate the world in the places we live and the way the places we work and where we play and day to day, moment by moment, living as a witness and as an example of Jesus so that they can see him in our lives by our actions, by the way that we live and whenever our actions are right, our words are going to be more effective. I'm not arguing that we're supposed to just do um, lifestyle evangelism and that somehow if we're just Christ-like enough, they're going to come and fall at our feet. But I'm saying that if we are living for Christ, then our words are going to have weight whenever we speak. Okay? We're going to see that even more in our, our next example here with Tabitha. By the way, there's two different names that she's called by Tabitha and Dorcas. I prefer Tabitha for obvious reasons. But the two different names are actually the same name. The two different names, Tabitha and Dorcas, means gazelle. Okay? Gazelle. Yeah. Gazelle. So maybe she was maybe she was a, a maybe she is tall, maybe she is quick, I don't know. But anyway. So, yeah, she came out, she had long, spindly legs, and they said, hey, gazelle. But anyway, so Tabitha and Dorcas both means gazelle. One is Hebrew, one is Hebrew, and the other one is Greek, okay? Tabitha, I believe, is the Greek one, and uh, I kind of prefer Tabitha. I would not name my kid Dorcas. They would have a tough life growing up, I guarantee it. Hey, Dorcas, come over here. 
So yeah, when we were naming the girls, that was definitely not one of them that was in the running. Could have called Lydia Dorcas. Tabitha wouldn't be bad, but Dorcas, no, we're not. But anyway, that's just, just a little bit of humor. <laughs> but anyway, uh, this woman, it says that she was a disciple. Okay, what does a disciple mean? Yeah, she was a follower. She was a student. She was a pupil. She was a learner of Christ. And it was manifest in her life, like we were just talking about a moment ago. It says that she was full of good works and alms deeds. Okay? And so she lived her life in generosity, serving and giving to others. And with her being a disciple of Jesus, it says that Jesus went about doing good. It seems like she was a good disciple, right? She was following in Jesus' footsteps. She was doing what he had done. Uh, but anyway, she got sick. She died. They washed her body, put her in an upper chamber, and she learned that, or they learned that uh, Peter wasn't too far away, and they sent for him. Okay, so matter of opinion here. This is opinion. There is no right or wrong answers. All right. So she's dead. They're sending for Peter. So why do you think they sent for Peter? What are they expecting? Okay. So this is what I'm wanting you to think about. Because up until this point in time, had Peter ever rose anyone from the dead? No. No, but he was there at day one during the speech. It's the Middle East, and they wanted to bury her, and they had no ways of preserving. So, hurry up! We want to get her in the ground, but we'd like for you to say a few good words of comfort first. So that's the thing that I'm trying to weigh out in my mind. Did they just want him to come to speak some words of comfort, maybe preach her funeral? No, I think that maybe he can do some kind of miracle. Okay. I kind of wonder if while she was sick, why did they didn't send her earlier and say, "Hey, come and heal her." said it's a matter of opinion we don't know and the bible's silent on it so we can't really say what their motives were but it's interesting to think about did they actually think okay it's never been done before you know jesus did it but peter definitely hasn't but just maybe he can raise her from the dead maybe or maybe they said hey peter's over there and she's talked about him she would have liked to have seen him she would have liked to have heard about him or heard from him, well, maybe he can at least speak at her funeral. Okay. Well, you bring up a you bring up a really good point. Okay. Maybe they didn't have a whole lot of expectations one way or the other, but we we're seeing God clearly work through this whole situation, right? And we're going to continue seeing Him working in these situations, and so God can 
prompt people, okay? It's not a matter of, okay, there's a vision from heaven and he said, go and do this. But many times in our lives, there can just be where God puts a desire in our mind or in our heart. And he's speaking through his Holy Spirit. He's working. And it's not something that is supernatural and obvious, but it's just him leading in different ways, right? And so maybe just someone amongst the crowd said, you know, I heard Peter was just down the street. Maybe we should send for him. And they're like, well, what do you think he's going to do about it? She's dead. Well, I don't know. It would be a good idea to bring him. Yeah. Someone, someone might have spoke up and said, hey, maybe he can heal her. Now, don't be stupid. She's dead. Right? And it would have been a conversation amongst the believers because they were believers just like us. So if you would put us in this situation, you know, transport yourselves back to there. Imagine the conversations that's going on. It wasn't one person. It was a, a group of believers, Right? And everybody was discussing, and it's like, oh, man, she's dead. I hate that she's gone. Did you hear Peter's down the road? Yeah, we should send for him. We should, you know, we should tell him about her and all the things that she's done, all these good works and everything. Maybe he can say some nice words. And as I said, someone speaks up and says, maybe he can heal her. Maybe he can raise her. And there might have been some of them that said, hey, maybe. There may have been others that said, no way. And so, honestly, it could have been all of the above, right? But they came to some sort of a consensus and they said, any way about it, no matter what happens, it would be good to have Peter here and he's close by. And so Peter comes in and it says that all of the widows are coming around and showing Peter the, the garments that she's made and all these things. And it seems like either she was in a ministry of clothing widows or she was making uh, like some goods and things like that to sell in order to support the widows, right? And so she was using her talents, her abilities, and the things that she was good at to be a blessing to others and be a witness for God, right? And so with her, this was her ministry. We don't really think of it that way, do we? God uses us where we are, the way that we are, doing the things that we know how to do, the talents and giftings, abilities that we have to glorify him. And so hers was making garments. And through her making these garments, she was a blessing to all the people around her. And whenever she died, they were saying, look at all the great things that she had done for us. Look at the way that she had given herself selflessly ministering to our needs. Like I said, whether it was her making these garments for them or making the garments to sell in order to give to the, the, the financial support to them. And so in this, we see that she was a witness for the Lord through her life. And I believe probably many people came to Christ because of her testimony and because of her witness. And so whenever Peter comes in, it says that, Verse 40, he put them all forth. He says, I don't need an audience. I don't need to make a big stink about all of this. I don't need to show everybody what I'm going to do. But he puts them all out. It says, just give me a moment here with the body. And he kneels down and he prays. And as I was reading through this, as I was thinking on this, put yourself in Peter's shoes, Okay. You've got a bunch of people who love this woman who are weeping and mourning on the outside. And she's laying here before you. 
and you're trying to figure out, God, how do I minister to these people? What am I supposed to do here? Peter has never rose someone from the dead. I'm wondering if Peter was even intentionally going in there to raise her. But he's at this place and he's saying, God, I'm your servant. I'm at your disposal. These people need something from you. These people need help. And I'm not able. There's nothing in me. There's no power in me. But God, would you just please do something? And God prompts him. God moves him and says, tell her to rise up. That'd be pretty powerful, right? I see Peter incredibly humble at this moment, just seeking after God to guide him, to use him in some way. He's not coming in and saying, okay, the apostle's here. Time for the show. Watch what I'm going to do. But he just comes in and says, it's a heavy time. This is a hard situation. How do I handle this, God? What would you have me to do? And God moves him to turn to her and tell her to arise. And so he turns to the body and he says, Tabitha, arise. And her eyes pop open. And he's like, oh man, it worked. Right? You think there's ever moments like that with Peter? Whenever he was surprised that it actually worked? Because we think that, you know, it was Peter, he was the apostle, he was faithful, and he just just believed God so much for all these things. And he, you know, everything that he was just amazed by what God did to him. And so her eyes pop open. She looks at Peter. She sets up. He takes her by the hand and he leads her out of the room where all the people are waiting for them. And so imagine the looks on the people's faces whenever he goes into the dead body and comes out with a living person. I figure things are pretty crazy for a while. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of celebration. I mean, it would have been something else to see all that happen. But what we see here in this, in verse 42, it was known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord, and it came to pass that he tarried many days in Joppa with one Simon the Tanner. And so the focus of this passage, the purpose of what he did, was to point people to Christ. And so he took someone who was beloved, who had a great testimony, and the Lord raised her from the dead. And the people there saw the love and the care that the Lord had for his people. They saw the power that he had to be able to work in the lives of the people, and they were receptive to the gospel. And so everyone was saying, I want to be a part of that. I want to follow the one who is able to do that. And nowhere do we see Peter being lifted up. Nowhere do we even see Tabitha or Aeneas being lifted up. But we see all the way through this, Christ being lifted up and people being drawn to Christ as a result. Okay? And so this is the purpose behind all of it. And as I said, I believe that today that we have so many things even greater than miracles to uh, to prove, to testify to the power and the working of God. 
that miracles were for a time. And I'm not saying that God doesn't still work miracles. But I'm saying that He's not going to have me laying hands on people and raising them from the dead. Okay? Because we have so much better evidence today. But that was something that was needed for a time. Now, I will allow that if there is someone in a similar situation to this, a people group somewhere who is searching for God and has no testimony of the Word of God, no knowledge of Him, can God still raise up people miraculously to them? It's possible. And I've heard many stories of uh, people in remote places and jungles and islands and different things that had never heard of God, never heard of Him, and they needed a testimony of the gospel, and God miraculously brought someone their way. I've heard that happening. But don't expect it to be the commonplace in Ireland or America or one of these places where the gospel is prevalent, where there is a, a testimony of God, because that's what this was. It was a testimony of God to a people who didn't know him and didn't have access to his word. Right? And so we shouldn't be going chasing after miracles, seeking experiences. We should be seeking God. We shouldn't be lifting up ourselves or lifting up any of these other things. We should be pointing people to Christ and to the salvation that comes from Him. Because first and foremost, people need eternal life. They don't need a better quality of life here now. Because what good does it do for someone to learn how to walk but never learn about Christ? What good does it do for someone to be healed of their blindness but remain blind spiritually? And so the greatest need that anyone has is that they would know Christ, not that their circumstances would be better. This is one reason why I believe the focus of the church shouldn't be on a social gospel. It shouldn't be on going out and doing all of these different, uh, you know, digging wells and in dry places and going out and feeding the hungry and doing all this and not sharing the gospel. doesn't mean that we shouldn't do those things. No, by all means, we need to do those things as a demonstration of God, of his love and of his power, but for the purpose of carrying the gospel to them. And so we can't be ministering to their physical needs and neglecting their spiritual needs, right? And so as we go about our lives living for him, we need to be his mouthpiece. We need to be his hands. And we need to be working amongst the people that we live around, the people that we are sent to, so that they can know Christ, so that they can be pointed to him. Our lives should be evidence of him so that we can speak to others about him, right? And so I believe that is our purpose, that is our place. And so as we see here in uh, these two miracles, I believe the entire focus of the whole passage is on bringing people to the Lord. God can do the miraculous. God can do the fantastic. He can uh, use us in ways that we have no idea, but everything that God does is going to be for God's glory and for the salvation of man. It's not for our entertainment. It's not for our comfort. It's not just to improve our lives down here below. But he wants to see us have life and have it more abundantly. And that doesn't mean an abundant bank account. That doesn't mean a fancy car. That means that we're going to have eternal life. That's what he's desiring for us. And so we see that in both of these occasions. And so does anyone have any 
anything to add to this or anything else uh, to discuss this morning? I think it's quite incredible that he did the miracle, and then after that he joined himself with Simon the Tanner, and we were tanning for a few weeks on the roof. Oh, that's it. Tanning salon, huh? <laughs> <laughs> but what we'll look at next week is, yeah, he's with Simon the Tanner, and God's going to do a work in Simon next week, in Peter next week. And... Um, I was actually, I was planning on looking into this this morning, but for the sake of time, I'm not going to. But just a little preview and what we're going to look at. Peter is still staying amongst the Jews. Uh, his old prejudices die hard. And he has went to the Samaritans, and then he left them. He's back in Judah, and he's in Joppa, he's in Lydda, he's in these different places. And he is dealing mainly with the Jews. And we're seeing that there's a slight departure, Okay. Because with Simon being a tanner, what's the job of tanning entail? Yeah, it'd be leather work. Yeah, Simon the tanner, he was a beach bum for life, right? That was what he did. But no, so it was it was leather work. You were constantly handling dead animals, dead carcasses, skinning them out. Handling and so for a Jew to be a tanner was an unclean job. It would have been uh, one of your worst jobs to have as a Jew. And for Peter to be in a tanner's house and staying with a tanner, it's already showing a departure from some of his Jewish prejudices. Because if you went to a town and you said, okay, the people here are extremely hospitable. That's part of our culture. If I show up, I knock at the door, they have to put me up. Right? Simon's house would be the last one anyone would knock at. As a Jew. Because he was unclean. He was surrounded by skins, by carcasses, by the smell of death. Even if you look into the tanning process, which I won't get into, it's disgusting. The way that they would uh, in you know, the old-fashioned way of tanning leathers and whatnot, it was disgusting. And so it would have stunk. It would have been unpleasant. It would have been ritually unclean for a Jew. And yet this is where Peter decided to set down roots at and spend some time here. And that's probably why he was on the roof. He's like, oh, it's a noon. The sun's hot, everything. And so it stinks in the house. I think I'll go up on the top. Let him tan down there. I'll tan up here, right? <laughs> But he's already overcoming some of his prejudices. But what we're going to see next week is that Peter is going to be challenged to go to the Gentiles and take the gospel. And so the barrier of, uh, of that prejudice between Jew and Gentile is going to be broken down. We've already seen the Ethiopian eunuch uh, be saved and receive the gospel, but he went on down to Ethiopia. Now it needs to go out not just from down to Ethiopia, but to go out into all the Gentiles and we're going to find that Peter is going to be the one that unlocks that door. It just takes God preparing him a little bit first. Okay? So we'll have to, I guess we'll have to get ready for lots of uh, joking and kidding around about him tanning on the roof. Okay.
So let's go ahead and we'll go to the Lord in prayer and we'll take a break. Dear Lord, we come to you today. Thank you for your blessings. And we do thank you for this time that we have in your house and in your word. And we just pray, Lord, for your, your blessings on the service today. Lord, I just ask you, Lord, help us to consider these things that we've looked at and the importance of being a witness and a testimony and the way that you're seeking to, to use average ordinary people just to be a light and a witness, to live for you uh, in amongst this world that we live in, Lord, so that we can be a testimony to those uh, who we come in contact with. We just thank you so much for all that you do and all you're going to do. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.